You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Cory Doctorow is an activist who has worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's the author of books including Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Eastern Standard Tribe, Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town, Overclocked and Makers, Content, a collection of essays, novels for young adults, Little Brother, a sequel to Little Brother, Homeland, and a forthcoming sequel to Little Brother, Attack Surface. His novels also include For the Wind, Pirate Cinema, and Walk Away. With Charles Strauss, he wrote The Rapture of the Nerds. His newest work is a collection of four novellas, Radicalized. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Oh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's nice to talk to you again in these uh, uncertain times here. Exactly. And what I was, I've been thinking about the very first conversation we had when you were working at the Electronic Frontier Foundation about Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, one of the primary subjects of that novel and of many of our conversations through the years has been the idea of the singularity. Uh, it was a term coined by Werner Vinge to describe what he foresaw as a time when change induced by intelligent uh, computers would come so fast and so furious that we wouldn't know what was going to happen today at the end of the day when the day began and we wouldn't have any way to comprehend what the world would be like when that change ever completed. Is that a pretty good summary? Um, sort of. So uh, I, I think Werner would be at pains to remind us all that he didn't coin the term. He popularized it. Uh, and uh, I think his formal definition is something like the singularity is the moment at which the rate of advance of technology outstrips our ability to understand it. And therefore, the people who live on the other side of that singularity would have a paradigm so different from our own that we couldn't communicate any longer, that like we, we would no longer be able to understand each other because we come from such radically different perspectives. You know, one of the things that in our conversations, you mentioned to me an idea that I thought was really interesting, which was that the creation of the printing press, you saw that as a kind of singularity. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been lots of these, especially like the more I hang out with historians, the the more I get an appreciation of this stuff. You know, uh, Ada Palmer, I think, is the science fiction writer probably ironically who writes best about the singularity because she never writes about it. She just writes about eras in history, both future and and past that are so different from our own that it really is a struggle to understand where those people are coming from. Um, she's a Renaissance historian. She's She's got tenure at the University of Chicago where her specialty is uh, forbidden knowledge in Florence during the Inquisition. So like homosexuality, witchcraft, heterodoxy, blasphemy, all that fun stuff. And uh, she's got this four volume series that she's just finished uh, writing the fourth volume of. It's not out yet. That starts with Two Like the Lightning. And it's set in a future that really only an historian could have written. It's it's very uh, it's a very different kind of future. It's a future where it's some of the like really core assumptions about who people are, what is important to know about them and what isn't. 
what is unforgivably rude and and what is just natural, they're all up for grabs. In the same way that like when you hear about, you know, courtiers in the Sun Court and the Sun King's Court in Versailles just sort of meandering out into the hallway to squat and take a shit in the hallway that servants would later come by and sweep up. You know, her future is one where, for example, it's considered unbelievably rude to ask someone what gender they identify as. Uh, everyone just takes a gender neutral pronoun and asking someone like, do you think of yourself as female is like asking someone if they're like really into rim jobs. It's just an unbelievably personal question to ask someone, which, you know, when you think about it, there's like if a Martian was looking through a telescope trying to figure out what is and isn't allowed in, in Earth. There's no reason why that taboo is is weirder or less weird than any of our other taboos. It's a very kind of local law that we have. There's that old I think it's a Heinlein adage that all laws are local and no law knows how local it is. But, you know, Heinlein really sucked at writing futures where where people's assumptions were so weird that, um, you know, it was hard to, to understand them. And there's a little of that maybe in Stranger in a Strange Land. Primarily, he wrote futures that were kind of reactionary, whereas, you know, uh, I don't know if you'd call uh, Ada's work reactionary progressive. I think she considers herself progressive, but certainly her futures are unrecognizable. The people in them are unrecognizable at at least at at uh, on a superficial level in terms of the things they value and and where their discourse lives. You know, I, one of the things that I've been thinking as we go through this uh, coronavirus episode in our history is that the way people are describing it to me, it sounds quite a bit like a singularity. You wake up in the morning, you have no idea what the situation is going to be by 8 o'clock that night. You have, on Monday, you have no idea where, and essentially most of civilization may be on Friday. And how this is all going to sort out in the longer term is really uh, difficult to suss for many people because there are so many opinions. And... It strikes me that this is a really good example. We are, in a sense, living through a kind of singularity. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about singularity, but certainly like a, a break point. You know, the, the um, uh, Rebecca Solnit. Oh, yeah, here we go. So, yeah, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Solnit had this column in The Guardian this week where she talked about the idea that that this is a crisis in the medical sense, right? The crisis for a doctor, when they say a patient is having a crisis, they mean the patient has arrived at the crossroads between recovery and death, right? It's, it's the, it's the juncture. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, she, she points out some other, uh, nice etymologies, right? Like emergency comes from emerge, you know, it, it shares a root with it, which is this idea that, you know, you are leaving behind an era and entering a new run and there's no, obvious posture that you should adopt or convention that you know will work that that the rules are restarting and then finally she she points out that the root of catastrophe is a word that means sudden overturning and you know i think all of those are true i don't know that they're the same as a singularity in in as much as i think that like at least in the immediate aftermath of the crisis when the crisis ends and whatever happens next happens next we will remember what things were like before the crisis and during it we could explain it to someone who is on the other side of the crisis you know if we had a time machine or a radio that would let us talk back across the the eras but that there will be a sense of epochal change um you know i think our social consensus will shift how it shifts is really uh, up for grabs. Obviously, this is a, a moment of enormous um, 
you know, enormous uh, 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 moment for for us to to seize the day or or lose it. And um, and, you know, that's why I think there's so many people who are uh, busily uh, pursuing, you know, political projects in this moment, trying to talk about what kind of world we could have, you know, and, and we're recording this like minutes after Bernie Sanders announced that he, he was closing up his campaign, which, you know, obviously like re changes some people's calculus as well. But, you know, like without wanting to be morbid and, and to be very clear, I'm not wishing ill on anyone. We are in a in a period in which the future is very hard to handicap, you know, irrespective of who becomes president in November, that person could be dead of coronavirus before they're inaugurated. Right. Uh, everyone who is in the running to be president in November, including Sanders, who I guess is no longer in the running, is in a high risk group for it. Not only that, uh, much of the Senate and uh, the Supreme Court. Right. We, we don't know how many justices the next president will appoint. And it could be a really big number, um, it, as well as federal judges, as well as lots of other appointments. You know, if, if physics profess, uh, progresses one funeral at a time, politics might progress several hundred funerals at a time at this point. You know, one of the things that, that's been striking me is that we are a narrative species. We live and die by our stories. We are our stories. And one of the things we're seeing is that our current story is usually reflected in all of the fiction and all of the media we see. And so there's a, a real course, close correspondence for us to know kind of where we are in the real story. But now when you say watch anything from TV from the last two or three years, you're, it's kind of freaky to see all those people in the same room and see them touching one another and doing all this weird stuff. You go, you, you can't do that. And, and what I'm realizing is, is that much of what was produced in a la both in fiction and movies and television in the last few months is now essentially an alternate present. <laughs> and yeah. we, we have no tie to that. Yeah, I mean, there's something to that. I, I, I mean, there we are developing a reflex to recoil from gatherings of large people, if for no other reason than they present uh, a kind of, um, the, you know, a kind of uh, a logistical challenge or or physical challenge, right? Figuring out how to uh, physically navigate people in crowded places while maintaining social distancing is the thing that we're increasingly aware of as is kind of the background understanding of like how many people around you are or aren't wearing masks. And so those, those, um, uh, reflexes will take some time to, uh, to get over, you know, probably not as long as it takes to develop them. Uh, in general, that's that, you know, it's easier to like, we had this like strong homeostatic bias, right? Things, things that, uh, are changed, change back more easily. You know, it's always easier to go back than forward. Um, you can see it with with things like uh, 9-11 and so on that, you know, it took a heroic effort to transition us to a surveillance society. And now that we're here, it's really hard to get back. Right. Like it's, um, you know, the 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 having established this new normal, it's hard to undo the normal, even though, like, does anyone really worry about global terror anymore at this point? Like, is that is that on anyone's mind? And yet, you know. Uh, if anything, we now have uh, the authorities who call for mass surveillance to fight global terror, just smoothly pivoting to the idea that mass surveillance is what we do for contact tracing. 
and that, you know, the mass surveillance itself should just never go away. You, you know, it strikes me, too, that we the more that we continue in this direction, we are science fiction is becoming much more of a mimetic form of fiction than uh, an imaginative form of fiction. Even it, when there are, when people in the science fiction genre are trying to uh, imagine a, a really different future, that future is somehow more um, real than the reality around us just because change is coming so fast and furious and from so many fronts. It's not just the coronavirus that's changing us. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think science fiction, though, has always been, despite its pretenses, a uh, reflection more than a prediction or sometimes a call to arms mm -hmm. um, disguised as a prediction. You know, there there is like a, a rhetorical move that is, uh, uh, you know, a, a common trick, which is to which is to treat a demand as an observation. You know, when when Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative to like neoliberal market capitalism with all the with all the gloves off, what she really meant was like, stop trying to think of an alternative. And, you know, sometimes science fiction writers and other people who have the pretense of being, you know, modern day fortune tellers who can see the future when they when they are doing their futurism, um, what they're really doing is they're they're uh, saying this is how I think should things should be. And they're disguising it as a claim about how they think things will be. And, you know, they're trying deliberately to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. But, you know, even within that framework. I think the best thing that science fiction gives us, uh, apropos the future, is insight into our present day anxieties and aspirations. Right? That there's this like field of of science fictional ideas, but you know, potential futures or or notional futures, and our society plucks from out of them the ones that chime most uh, uh, loudly with their fears and aspirations. You know, Mary Shelley comes in and out of vogue whenever we're worried about our technology outrunning our ability to manage it or worried that hubris will will uh, uh, deliver us a technological comeuppance, that kind of thing. But it, it's not really so much a prediction. And then sometimes, you know, writers, I think, are a little more forthright about it. They don't say this is how I think things uh, or this. They don't say this is how I think things will be. They actually do say this is how I think things should be. You know, and and sometimes the things that they want are really odious. You know, I think that's by by way of something like, say, Atlas Shrugged. Uh, and sometimes the things that they want are things that I agree with. You know, my own novel Walkaway is kind of everybody shrugs back at Atlas. And it's not so much a prediction as a <laughs> as a demand, you know, uh, or a, 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 a call to arms. And I think that, you know, all of the above are, are present in science fiction. You know, one of the things about science fiction that has changed, I think, since you and I first started talking even, is that the idea of world building. Back, you know, 20 years ago or so, it was a, a device that was seen mainly relegated to science fiction, either creating, you know, an alien world or fantasy and those kind of structures. It's now understood to be kind of at the foundation in a sense of most fiction because any fiction writer has to create a world but one of the kinds of tool other major tools of science fiction i think that's effective and interesting to me is what i call hand waving 
And this is the way that science fiction writers make, and fantasists, make their creations seem realistic, possible, easy to, for the reader to slip into that completely, essentially foreign narrative and, and, but, and feel at home. And I was wondering if you care to talk about how world building has become seen as something uh, more ubiquitous than it was. And talk about how your approach to hand-waving works. I'm not sure I understand the way that you're using the term hand waving. I I always understood the term to mean um, when you are when you when you run out of uh, I um, like rational explanations for what you've got. You just start furiously waving your hands to to uh, uh, distract people, right? Like, oh, I have this galactic empire that's grounded in fast and the light travel, and here's a detailed workout of its politics and. Uh, uh, what do you want to know about how the faster than light travel actually works? Uh, here, let me start waving my hands because, uh, you know, that part's just fantasy. So I'm not sure I quite understand. Like, is that that doesn't sound like what you mean when you say hand waving. Is that right? Uh, for me, hand waving comes in it, the deliberate inclusion of physics based on all that kind of stuff that seems like to be clearly an understandable and reasonable assumption. I think that's all part of hand-waving, to, to my mind, in that, you know, as soon as you get into a science fiction work, it's unreal. <laughs> it's, not, it's not happening right now. And, and so the, the writer has to use some kind of shorthand and I, throughout the book uh, in order to create a connection so that the reader sitting in whatever year they're reading that book can slip into this other book and, and accept all the entire premise. And it's, I think it's, a, to my mind, it involves a choice of language, um, you know, the neologisms and some other, you know, sub-tools of, of, hand, of the hand-waving effect. Hmm. It, it sounds like maybe you mean what Joe Walton calls incluing, which mm -hmm. is like, the door irised open, you know, just this idea that you throw these like little bits of, of detail. And I had a short story once, um, uh, human readable where, uh, they pass some surfer dudes who are putting, uh, sunblock on their tits, you know, as the phrase I used and it kind of confused people, but it also like, it kind of invites people to imagine that there's something going on there that is different than what we think. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you mean. Is that, that is that close that, to what you mean? Yeah, that that's kind of very thing? close to, to yeah. what I mean. And, and I think that's yeah. an interesting thing. We are having to develop a whole new system of including right now in this culture to give an idea to, so we can speak briefly about these enormous changes that have come, might come, are coming. Well, yeah, certainly I think that... Um, you know, unthinkable ideas have suddenly become thinkable in this moment. You know, that's another thing that came came out of the Solnet, right? You know, the mm -hmm. the one of the big questions that everyone was asking before Solnet was like, or before the crisis was like, how do you pay for social programs, right? And now it's like, oh, we just reach in the sofa cushions and find a couple trillion dollars when we need it. Uh, and and you know, the whole idea of paygo has become something of a, a, a tarnished idea within the space of milliseconds, really. And, you know, that's that's uh, an old idea. 
Um, just today, I wrote about a, an essay Keynes wrote, a pamphlet Keynes wrote during World War II called How to Pay for the War, where he basically said, like, our problem with paying for the war isn't how much money we have. We're the government, right? Like, if we need money, we just print the money. The problem is if we try to procure more things than the economy can deliver or if we try to procure things that the private sector is trying to procure so that we get into a bidding war with them, then printing money becomes inflationary. But neither the lack nor the oversupply of money are a problem here. Uh, and, you know, that's an idea that um, was largely forgotten after the war, although it's, uh, you know, empirically like how we paid for the war. Like we did things like printed a whole ton of money and then said, okay, well, how do we stop people from spending that money in ways that produce inflation? Oh, I know. We'll tell them all they need to buy war bonds so that they don't have the money anymore. We don't need war bonds to fund the war. It's not like, it's not like we have to wait for you to give us some money before we can send that money out to your for to your employer to like pay you to build tanks. Uh, we just make the money we need for your employer to buy tanks. When you give us the money for the war bonds, we don't send it out again. We just put it in a shredder, right? This is like, you know, Apple, when it needs uh, when it when it needs to sell you an iTunes gift card, it doesn't have to wait for me to redeem one so it can give you the new one. <laughs> Apple just pulls another integer out of its ass and and makes a new gift card. Um, and, you know, so Keynes wrote this in 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 uh, I want to say 39 or 40. And it's an idea that's that's coming back into vogue now. Likewise, the idea that it's impossible to extend basic protections to workers. Likewise, the idea that ISPs have to cap our bandwidth, you know, like all of these ideas that were that were considered gospel and where, you know, the people who advocated for them were people who who made this claim that, um, you know, the the underlying math is uh, so uh, abstruse and difficult that it's impossible for normal mortars to, mortals to understand. So you shouldn't even just try to discuss it. This is like, this is, this is grown up time and the children all have to go to bed now while the grown ups talk about money. Um, and now, you know, we're kind of back into or network management or whatever. And now we're back into this, this idea that like things are up for grabs. Like we can, we can challenge received wisdom. It's, it's, it's pretty exciting to be frank. Um, you know, and in terms of science fiction, uh, I, I think that we will, as with after 9-11, see a whole ton of science fiction that kind of reflects back this moment. You know, there are a couple of volumes of fiction in the wake of 9-11 that I found uh, profound in how they revisited the themes of the of the genre. Um, the first one is a, a thriller by Ian Banks called Dead Air. Uh, and um, it's a 9-11 thriller. And for me, it marked the transition from pre-cell phone thrillers to post-cell phone thrillers. So pre-cell phone thrillers were all, all, inevitably um, the role that cell phones played in them because the pre-cell phone thriller post-dates the invention and the spread of the cell phone. It, it just fails to like take account of them. The way that it manages cell phones and plots is to have them stop working at key junctures. Uh, and so, you know, this is a, there, there are super cuts of this on the web, right? Where it's like, oh, we have to call that person, but wait, the phone network is down, right? That is like that. That's the way that we historically coped with, with cell phones in our plots. And Ian Banks uses cell phones working, not cell phones breaking as a way of serving the plot. He has someone who goes into the, the killer's house while the killer is out. And then the killer comes home and, uh, the person hides in the closet. 
and the novel switches to a string of text messages from this person in the closet to their confederate outside. And the fact that the cell phone works becomes far more uh, uh, tension building than a cell phone failing at a critical juncture. Uh, by the same token, uh, Bill Gibson's uh, pattern recognition mm -hmm. was uh, a superb intervention in the field in that it used the, the um, set dressing and forms of science fiction to call our attention to how profoundly our norms had shifted after 9-11 by writing a science fiction novel set in the recent, recent past. Uh, and it was such a bold move. And he did three of them uh, and then did no fiction for a long time or no novels for a long time. And then busted out this like far future novel that was also set in the near present, the peripheral, uh, which which what uses. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's the marriage of the the pre 9-11 Gibson with the post 9-11 Gibson. Right. It's a it's a history of the recent past uh, as a science fiction novel married to a history of the far future as a science fiction novel uh, merged together. It's a, it's a, it, it, you know, he's doing such amazing and astounding work and the new one agency is, is if anything, even better. I, I would agree. And, but speaking of, of new books, um, you have a new book out radicalized. It, it's just absolutely wonderful. I'm, I enjoyed the hell out of it. And, and I wanted to ask you real quick. Um, this is a collection of four novellas. And that's an interesting form, and I think it's one that's somewhat common in in the world of genre fiction, both uh, horror fiction and supernatural fiction, and in science fiction. Talk about deciding to to write these four novellas. Yeah, this was a, like they were an accidental book. Um, I was managing my Trump era anxiety by. Uh, <laughs> writing these uh these novellas right trying to trying to take the like because one of the elements of the trump era is the s speed at which news comes at you which is like uh i think it's an epiphenomenon partly of like trump's um uh scandal management tactic which is to generate new scandals before old scandals can ripen and so there's like he's just trying to it's like running across the river on the back of backs of alligators hoping not to you know not to get bitten um, and you know, one, one, uh, outflow of that is that there's just a lot of news. Uh, and then the other thing that about it is that it, um, the, the way that networked, uh, storytelling goes or networked news and opinion work is that there's a lot of repackaging of old news with new headlines or new angles because we have this stuff like, uh, you know, like, uh, 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 AB splitting and analytics, where you can run a series of experiments where you try to figure out which which way of talking about a story will will uh, chime with people the loudest. And so as a consequence, you know, we just have like news coming at us at a rate that we can barely manage because we don't just get all the news stories Trump is generating. We get the same stories that Trump already generated in, uh, you know, in in new form in new packaging fueled by analytics software and A-B splitting. And and so, you know, when I am faced with a kind of narrative incoherence, my auctorial uh, nature says that I should try and make narratives out of it. And so first I wrote Unauthorized Bread, the first of the four novellas in the in the book. And I sent it to my editor and said, like, I don't really know what to do with this. And he said, you know, this is like 
really good and timely. And we're just going to bring it out as a standalone novella. We're going to rush it into print where we're, you know, we'll treat it like a, a front list release. We'll pay you a bunch of money uh, and um, we'll we'll even put you out on tour with it and we'll publish it like in two months uh, and try and figure out how to do a publicity push and all that time. And I said, okay, that's great. And then like a week later, I wrote the second story model minority and I sent it to my editor and he was like, this is also really good. We should just do it again. We'll, we'll publish one in September and the next one in October. And then I said, you know, I've got another one that I'm working on. And he said like, <laughs> okay, exactly. How many of these are you working on? And I was like, well, I think there's four. And he was like, all right, we're just going to publish it like it was a novel. We'll publish it like a frontless title, put them all in one book. We're not we're not going to call it a collection because, you know, publishers, the big five publishers don't really do collections uh, with with very small exceptions. Um, we're going to just treat it like a novel. We'll call it a science fiction book uh, and just uh, and, and put it out and just do a big, big push. And so it came out last March uh, and, and then just came out again in paperback. And that was that was kind of the origin story of that book. Well, that that's really fascinating. It's like something that would have uh, you might have written about in science fiction yeah, twenty five yeah, years indeed. ago. <laughs> indeed, I've been speaking with Court Doctorow. His latest book is Radicalized. His forthcoming book in October is Attack Surface. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Oh, thank you, Rick. It was really a pleasure. Uh, it's been too long. I hope you're you're bearing up well. Oh, we're just doing fine. So thank you very much. And I hope you are doing well. And well, I hope to see you in a, yet another unrecognizable future. Yeah, you too. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.